the talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And I am Bill Newman. And it's Friday, and I'm still Buzz Eisenberg. And we have with us as our first guest today the state representative from the 1st Franklin District, Natalie Blay. The 1st Franklin District, for those of you who are saying, okay, probably Franklin County, yes, that is right. She represents, Representative Blay represents the towns of Ashfield, Bernardston, Buckland, Charlemont, Coleraine, Conway, Deerfield, Hawley, Heath, Leverett, Leiden, Monroe, Montague, Rowe, Shelburne, uh, Sunderland, Waitley, and some of Greenfield. The heart of the Commonwealth. So, Rep. Blay, <laughs> thanks so much for being with us. I, when I was uh, preparing for the show today, I must say um, I was struck, as I am every time, by the fact that you represent part, four precincts in Greenfield. And I suppose that shouldn't be such a shock. I mean, after all, cities are divided up all the time. Boston doesn't have one representative. No reason why Greenfield should only be have one representative in the State House of Representatives. And in fact, uh, uh, towns in western Massachusetts, uh, much smaller than Greenfield, are divided in two sometimes. But I'm wondering, from your point of view, is it helpful, hurtful, or neutral that you share representation of the city of Greenfield with another representative? It's a great question. Uh, you know, as a, as a result of redistricting, Greenfield uh, fell to, to rep whips and me uh, to represent the city, and I think it's a positive. I really enjoy working with rep whips. She has a, a very different you know, background and different expertise than I do. So we are using this as an opportunity to lean on one another and the, the different areas that we've worked on in the past uh, to be able to, to, repre to represent Greenfield to the best of our abilities. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to working with the mayor. And uh, I, I do think it's a positive. And this is, I take it, simply a matter of numbers because each representative's district has to be pretty close in number of constituents to every other district. And therefore, well, you put the, together the other 17 towns and there are an insufficient number of people to make up a representative's district. Is that basically the story? That's exactly it. And, you know, as we saw here after the census, we know that Franklin County and Berkshire County were the only two counties in the Commonwealth to lose population. And you know, when it came down to looking at house districts across the entire Commonwealth, it's like putting a puzzle together. And each puzzle piece has to be around 42,000 people. Um, as a result of the loss in population, we ended up losing a house seat in Western Massachusetts, and that was the, the seat of Representative uh, Paul Mark, who went on to run for Senate. Um, but if you start in you know, the border of Berkshire County and you go east and you start adding up those numbers, by the time the redistricting committee got to Greenfield, there was really no other way to make the first Franklin district work within the numbers uh, that we were required. So now uh, the first Franklin district includes 42,982 people. Which is exactly the right number? <laughs> it's exactly the right number. <laughs> Let me ask you this. This is not on my list of things to ask you about this morning, but since you have brought up, or I brought up, 
one of us brought up the question of population. I'm wondering whether loss of population in Western Massachusetts, uh, as evidenced by the census, is a matter of concern, and whether it speaks to the need, for example, for uh, west-east, east-west rail, or other policies that uh, are would are and or would be a significant to to the region. What are your thoughts about that? I appreciate you raising it. It absolutely is a concern. And I had the opportunity to sit down with Lieutenant Governor Driscoll and members of Governor Healy's team within a week and a half after inauguration to talk about exactly this point. Uh, The bottom line is if if we do not begin to invest in Western Massachusetts and really address everything from you know, education to jobs to transportation and infrastructure, I am very concerned that 10 years from now we'll be sitting here in these same seats uh, looking just as good as ever. <laughs> With a little um, luck, yes. <laughs> and, and see that population decline continue to occur. Uh, I'm not interested in sitting here and watching that happen. What I am interested in doing is really taking a look at policies and programs that will begin to turn that around. Um, and I think that you know, you'll see in terms of the, the legislation that I've offered, that I've championed in the past, each one of those pieces are a critical point uh, for trying to turn those, those demographic shifts around. And I know nowhere, this is Buzz, uh, Representative Lane, nowhere does that uh, loss of population manifest itself so dramatically is in our schools, our rural schools losing enrollment and the formula by which they can survive uh, results in hardship. But I know that's been high on your list of priorities for since you became a representative. Absolutely. I mean, it's been an issue since I was first elected, but it really manifested itself um, as we talked about the Student Opportunity Act. And there is no doubt, and we've, we've talked about this, the Student Opportunity Act was critically important. It was a monumental shift in how we fund education in the Commonwealth. Um, but it left rural communities behind. And there was, there was a recognition that you know, in the scope of what the Student Opportunity Act was intended to address through the Foundation Budget Review Commission, um, that there needed to be, we needed to dig a little bit deeper to determine what, uh, what the issues were when it came to the fiscal challenges facing our rural schools. Uh, so we did create the Rural Schools Commission as a part of the Student Opportunity Act. Uh, we, have, we completed that work at the end of July, and there are 36 recommendations included in that report that we are now trying to roll into an omnibus piece of legislation and have talked with the Healy Driscoll administration about you know, how do we pull the budgetary pieces out uh, for them to consider including in their very first budget, which they are currently uh, pulling together in, in a first term, which is a really difficult task. While we're on the topic of uh, census and schools, I'd like to ask your impression or your reaction to a story that's on the front page of the Gazette. I didn't see it in the recorder this morning. It's The headline is, Report Fewer Students Enrolling. Comerford and Mark, our senators, say part of the solution is to expand investment in public education 
And in fact, we know that the community college enrollment here, Greenfield Community College, Holyoke Community College, Stick, uh, as well as uh, many other institutions of higher education, uh, enrollments are down. Is that a matter that you think the legislature needs and should address? I, I'm really grateful for the leadership of, of Senator Cumberford and now Senator Paul Mark in this, in this area. Uh, you were going to say representative, weren't you? And you caught yourself. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I've got Senator Mark. We're good. Um, you know, this, is, this is an area that we should focus on. Uh, the Cherish, Cherish Act is a piece of legislation that has been put forward to begin to uh, address you know, how we fund our state community colleges, universities, and, and the UMass system. Um, I have to say, you know, I worked for Chancellor Subaswamy at UMass Amherst as his chief of staff. Uh, a number of us were, were there visiting UMass last week. You know, what is happening on the UMass Amherst campus is really extraordinary. And their vision for a, a zero net energy campus uh, will be a leader for the rest of the Commonwealth. And you know, the fact that they graduate more residents of Massachusetts than, than any other public higher education um, institution here in, in the Commonwealth is, should be lauded. Uh, the fact that those graduates remain here in the Commonwealth to make our community stronger is something that not a lot of people recognize. And it, between UMass and our community colleges and our state universities, we just have so much to offer and we should be supporting them every chance we get. Right, but if students can't afford to go, not because they can't necessarily afford the tuition, but because they can't have the economic, they don't have the economic wherewithal to attend a community college to support their families and all that, having the greatest institutions in the world, and we mm -hmm. do, it's a bit, a bad choice of words back, academic, because, well, if students can't afford to go there, all the offerings in the world won't make much of a difference. Well, I think if you look at how the, the, the support for these institutions from the state has declined over the last several decades, it's meant that more of the costs shift to the students and their families. That's wrong. You know, if we are actually um, concerned and, and want to invest in our future, then the Commonwealth needs to turn that around and make sure that we are increasing those financial supports for these, these institutions are not only serving their students, uh, but also the regional economy. And UMass Amherst is the largest employer of people in my district, um, and we, it, that is they're an, an important economic driver for the region. Uh, Greenfield Co Community College is the same. So I, I strongly believe that we need to turn you know, that decline in state investment around and make sure that we tip that so that, that it's going up and not down. Speaking of UMass, uh, the Chancellor, Kumbh Sumaswamy, is retiring at the end of this academic year. The search committee is down to two finalists for the Chancellor's job at UMass Amherst. Uh, it's not as if we haven't had, I haven't had disagreements with uh, Chancellor uh, Subaswamy, but on the whole, he's done a terrific job um, in 
growing the campus and the community and paying attention to students and the different constituencies on that campus and really making UMass Amherst a world-class university. I'm wondering if you have some thoughts and or fears about, frankly, uh, no, look, no one's irreplaceable, but he's been really good. And I'm wondering if you have some thoughts about his leaving the chancellorship. Uh, I am heartbroken <laughs> that, that Swami is leaving. Uh, you know, I was, I was his first chief of staff, uh, and getting to know him in that role was an extraordinary opportunity. Uh, he is profoundly committed to public higher education and every single decision that he makes is towards that goal. And, you know, when you meet him, he's just one of the, the, the kindest, uh, most generous, uh, funny people that, that you'll ever meet. So it is, a, it is a loss. And what he's been able to, um, to accomplish in his time here at UMass, that stability that, provide, that he provided, the vision, really brought UMass Amherst onto, you know, the national level in terms of the education uh, that it's providing to students. Um, that being said, you're right. You know, everybody um, can be replaced. Uh, we will miss him dearly. Uh, but I, I've seen both of these uh, candidates. I've, I've reviewed their history and, and what they've been able to accomplish. And I'm very, very excited uh, about the future going forward for the campus. We are speaking with State Representative Natalie Blay. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I have a sh funny story that uh, Swami, as Chancellor Kumbhasun Swami, shared with me. I'm going to share it on the other side of this break. And then we want to talk to Rep. Blay about hemp cultivation and protection of farmlands and dental care access, all issues really crucial to her district. We'll do that right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. You spend seven or eight hours a night together and you're supposed to decide if you're right for each other in a matter of minutes? This has never made sense to me. So when you're in my store, trying to decide which mattress is right for you, at some point I think you and I just need to stop talking. I need to leave you alone, give you plenty of time to lay down and maybe even forget you're in a furniture store. Hi, it's Robin, Robin from Talon. Think about it, seven or eight hours, night after night, and what do you really know about mattresses? I don't mean to make it daunting or complicated. I just think you need two things, information and time. If I give you as much information as you want and as much time as you need, I think you'll settle on a mattress you'll be happy with. At least that's the way it seems to go for most people. Talon Furniture, the small, unhurried furniture and mattress store just down the hill from Amherst College. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. 
Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone, two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we continue our conversation with the representative from the 1st Franklin District, Natalie Blay. Uh, Rep. Blay, we were talking about uh, Chancellor Suva Swami, Swami, who is leaving uh, at the end of this academic year as the Chancellor of UMass Amherst, and I said I would tell a story. So, look, he's leaving. <laughs> we'll talk out of school a little bit. I was at a luncheon with the <laughs> Chancellor some years ago. And there were a number of college presidents and chancellors and academic deans present. And he is bemoaning what has happened with regard to the visitation day at UMass where accepted students come and visit the campus. And he says, look, we put all this money into this amazing gym and extraordinary food service and all of the other sort of pluses that go with a world-class university, not to mention what we do to let people know about our academic offerings and our extraordinary faculty. And he goes on and on and on and on. And so he said, we've done a study as to what really influences people, (laughs) students who have been accepted to come to the campus. And we apparently did not factor in the most important factor, which is, and we're all sitting there with bated breath waiting to what, what is going to be the answer. He says, the weather on the day of visitation. Because <laughs> that apparently makes a huge difference. I didn't know. But who knew? So we've decided to move UMass Amherst to Florida. <laughs> he says it's nice and sunny and beautiful. People want to come. It's rainy and, and foggy and overcast. Not so much. He said, who knew? Oh, oh well. And he, was in, he, he, did, he, he tells a very funny story. Listen, Rep. Blay, I'd like to go on to a few other topics um, that I know you you are involved with, one of which is uh, hemp cultivation, and you've had legislative proposals in that regard. Can you share that with our listeners, please? Yeah, last session, uh, I partnered with Rep. Smitty Pignatelli, who was really the lead on this on this bill, uh, in terms of what is allowed to be grown on APR land. So that's What's APR? Land, agriculture, agricultural Preservation Restriction. Uh, so farmers can get an APR on their land, agricultural preservation restriction, um, that helps to protect that land going forward. And but they're as a result of putting the land in an APR, they are only allowed to do certain things on that parcel. Uh, one of the things that they were not allowed to grow on APR land was was hemp, and you know, we've seen that uh, really grow as an industry over the last couple of years. Um, we filed this legislation to allow hemp to be grown on APR land, um, and it ended up moving forward as a result of guidance that the Baker Polito administration at the time uh, promulgated. So as you're looking at how to advance legislation, it doesn't always have to be uh, through a bill. It can be through an executive order. It could be through a change in a policy or program that an administration advances. Uh, but you know, we're looking. We're always looking for ways to move these bills as quickly as possible. It it doesn't always end up happening on the floor through a vote. 
uh, and this was one of the, the ideas that was put forward. The Baker-Polito administration picked it up and ended up you know, putting forth this guidance. It's not codified into law, however. So uh, Committee Pignatelli, Rep. Pignatelli out of the Berkshires, uh, and I have co-filed this legislation again to codify uh, hemp being able to be grown on APR land. And the purpose of this is to give flexibility to farmers on the crops they want to grow, I take it? Yes. Okay. Now, our farmers are so good at, di- at diversifying, uh, but this was a tool that was sort of left out of their their belt in terms of what they're able to, to grow. So, yes, this was, this was a way to help them to diversify. You've been involved with other uh, legislative efforts with regard to farmlands, uh, specifically with regard to protecting farmlands. Can you share that with our listeners, please? Yeah, you know, the First Franklin District is very rural, and farms really serve as part of the backbone of of our economy. They're not only providing fresh, local, healthy food, they're also providing jobs and really fueling the local economy when it comes to purchases of, of vehicles and, and materials and, and things like that. So you know, I've, I've been very lucky to work with Senator Comerford on sort of an omnibus bill that would support our farmers. Um, one of the bills that we offered last session and are, are offering again this session is an act strengthening local food systems. We know that farmers in Massachusetts struggle to remain sustainable, and on average, they earn just 96 cents for every dollar they spend producing food. Um, So the bill that we introduced aims to help support their efforts, uh, creating a circuit rider program at the Massachusetts Department of Agriculture that will support their efforts. Uh, It establishes a $3 million Next Generation Farmers Fund to provide education grants uh, and, and many other uh, pieces that, you know, they're just small pieces, but put together into a larger bill, they have the potential to really make an impact on ensuring that our local food system is as strong as possible. Uh, the other bill that I'm really excited about offering, again, with Senator Comerford is uh, promoting equity in agriculture. We know that BIPOC farmers are represented on only 2.3% of the Commonwealth's farms. Uh, so we really want to... Wait a second. Can we stop there for one second? Did I hear you correctly? Something like 98% of the farmers in Massachusetts are white. Is that the other that way of putting this? Correct. Wow. Yes. And people of color make up nearly 30% of our state's population. So we really want to make sure that we dig a little bit deeper there, establish a commission to develop recommendations for the Massachusetts Department of Agriculture to really equitably serve those socially disadvantaged farmers and, and find ways to address these disparities going forward so that we do continue to have a very strong local food system. Let me turn to another topic. In the uh, last election, uh, there was a ballot question that related to dental care and re- reimbursement rates. Uh, don't need to get into the weeds about that again, but I know that making <laughs> dental care available uh, in your district uh, has been one of your priorities, and I didn't know much about it. I was poking around online. I'm wondering if you could share what your efforts have been with regard to making dental care available in the First Franklin District and obviously other places in the Commonwealth as well. Yeah, dental care is really an, an, it's a critical component of 
our overall health. You know, if your teeth are failing, if they're falling out, if you have cavities, um, you're less likely to be eating. Um, you're, you're living in a lot of pain, relying on pain medications. Uh, so we want to make sure that we're looking at dental care holistically as part of your overall health. We have incredible federally qualified community health centers here in Western Massachusetts uh, that, that serve you know, populations who may not otherwise have access to care. And we have historically struggled to be able to provide dental care to all of our residents. So what we learned last session was that the state's dental care reimbursement to community health centers like you know, the Hilltown Community Health Center, the Musante Community Health Center, or the Greenfield, you know, the Franklin County Community Health Center, it was, it was far below what it actually cost them to provide the care. So we offered a bill to fix that last session. And in the meantime, again, you know, the Baker-Polito administration, uh, I hope spurred by this legislation, announced a 65% increase in dental reimbursement rates for community health centers across the Commonwealth. It fulfilled the goal of what Senator Comerford and I offered for this legislation and really helped support our community health centers financially in terms of continuing to be able to provide this critical dental care uh, to our constituents. We are getting near the end of our time. Uh, I know that Buzz is here, had a number of questions. Do you have to run? I assume you do. I, I can stick around for however long you need me. <laughs> you can? Well, great. Stick with us for a few minutes. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. With, okay. gonna, we're going to impose on State Representative Natalie Blay a few things we want to talk <laughs> about, including solar panels and transportation, really important topics that she's doing an enormous service to her constituents and to this region on. So we'll pick up those right after these messages. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Amherst Town Council is considering a request to State Senator Joe Comerford and State Rep Mindy Dom to file a special act that would allow lawful non-citizen residents the ability to register to vote. This would then need to be approved by legislature. If successful, the town would join several other communities in adopting the measure, including Northampton and Warwick. The council is referring the special act for review by its Governance, Organization, and Legislation Committee next week. A judge has ordered the deportation of a commercial truck driver from Ukraine who was taken into custody by immigration authorities last year, shortly after he was acquitted of causing the deaths of seven motorcyclists in New Hampshire. 27-year-old Vladimir Zukovsky of West Springfield had a series of immigration hearings after he was acquitted in August on seven counts of manslaughter, seven counts of negligent homicide, and one count of reckless conduct. The charges stem from a June 21, 2019 crash in Randolph, New Hampshire that killed seven members of the Jarheads Motorcycle Club, an organization of Marine Corps veterans and their spouses. The town of East Hampton has signed a contract with an engineering firm to develop a plan that will allow the city to examine the city's dependence on fossil fuels and see how effective some of the projects underway are helping to reduce the carbon output. Mayor Nicola Chappelle tells the Gazette her climate action plan will help the city tackle the looming effects of climate change and give officials the ability to identify action steps to decarbonize East Hampton as soon as possible. 
Partly to mostly sunny today, windy and mild, a high of 48 to 52. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 30s, an overnight low of 22 to 28. Mostly sunny tomorrow, 38 to 42. Sun cloud mix back into the upper 40s on Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El globo de China derribado por Estados Unidos estaba equipado para detectar y recopilar señales de inteligencia como parte de un enorme programa de vigilancia aérea vinculado al ejército que tenía como objetivo a más de 40 países, declaró el jueves la administración Biden citando imágenes de aviones espía estadounidenses U-2. Una flota de globos opera bajo la dirección del Ejército Popular de Liberación y se usa específicamente para espiar con equipos de alta tecnología diseñados para recopilar información confidencial de objetivos en todo el mundo, dijo Estados Unidos. Globos similares han navegado por los cinco continentes según la administración. Una declaración de un alto funcionario del Departamento de Estado ofreció la mayor cantidad de detalles hasta la fecha que vincula al ejército de China con el globo que Estados Unidos derribó el fin de semana pasado sobre el Océano Atlántico. Los detalles públicos que describen el alcance y las capacidades del programa estaban destinados a refutar las negativas persistentes de China de que el globo se usó para espiar, incluso incluida una afirmación el jueves de que las acusaciones de Estados Unidos sobre el globo equivalen a una guerra de información. En otras informaciones, el ex vicepresidente de Estados Unidos Mike Pence y el ex asesor de seguridad nacional Robert O'Brien han sido citados por el fiscal especial que dirige las investigaciones sobre documentos clasificados encontrados en la residencia del expresidente Donald Trump en Mar-a-Lago y los esfuerzos para anular el resultado de las elecciones de 2020, según informes de prensa el jueves. Pence recibió una citación del fiscal especial Jack Smith, aunque la naturaleza de la solicitud no se conoció de inmediato. La acción sigue a meses de negociaciones entre fiscales federales y los abogados de Pence. Por su parte, O'Brien ha estado haciendo valer el privilegio ejecutivo al negarse a proporcionar parte de la información que los fiscales buscan de él. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And I am Bill Newman. And Buzz, identify yourself. Sign in, please. I am Buzz Eisenberg. Really happy to be speaking with Representative Natalie Blay, the first Franklin. Who is your state rep? She certainly is. And um, <laughs> I think, you know, I don't know whether we are journalists or just commentators, but I, I don't mind saying I am thrilled that she's my state rep. Okay, you heard it here. You heard it here first. Professions of love. Well, maybe we'll just change the name of the show <laughs> from well, talk to talk Day. to professions We're, of love. Oh, it's Valentine's Day. Right. Well done, Buzz. Valentine's. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well, Repley, before uh, you go, I, I want to ask you about uh, uh, one of the pieces of legislation that you were involved in because it covers not only your district but. Uh, uh, much of Western Massachusetts is important to much of Western Massachusetts. And that's the legislation about uh, solar panels. Um, and I'm wondering, since I didn't know much about it, and I kind of think many of our listeners don't either, legislation on solar panels, what is happening and why? Yeah, we. Uh, I filed legislation last session with Rep. Mindy Dom around uh, single parcel solar uh, you know, net metering makes solar affordable for people. It allows solar panel owners to sell excess energy back to the grid. Uh, but the way that the law was written, 
only one entity on a single tax parcel of land could participate in that metering. So if you lived in a condominium complex or an apartment complex or, or low-income housing or had a farm, you were unable to participate in, in this solar net metering program. So as a part of the two climate bills that we passed last session, we were able to advance this legislation uh, that allows for net metering for multiple facilities on the same parcel, and it does eliminate that donut hole for on-site solar energy net metering. So this was a big win in terms of expanding solar access to everybody and putting it on our, our rooftops. This session, we've, we've taken that a step further, and we're trying to put more solar canopies on parking lots. Uh, Senator Comerford and I have offered legislation, and I really want to praise her office in terms of doing some research about what's happening in France. Um, and this mirrors the, the great work that's going on there to put solar power generating canopies over large commercial parking lots uh, and incentivizing the construction of those solar canopies to help us meet our greenhouse gas emissions. So putting them there rather than, you know, on farmland or forest land or wherever else it happens to be. We really need to be focused on incentivizing solar on that hardscape that is already there. Well, that seems like a win-win-win, taking land that's just parking lots and turning it into energy, clean, green energy production. Uh, anyone opposed to this? Uh, not that we've heard of. And, you know, if you want to see what this looks like, UMass Amherst has done an incredible job in terms of putting these these solar panels over many of their parking lots on campus uh, and it provides you know, protection in the wintertime in the summertime it's providing protection from the sun and it is a win-win it's a win-win we, we saw it with river it. valley bill um in yeah. east hampton mm. they did the same thing there and it's great yes you you yes. you you uh pave parking lot and put up a paradise how's that <laughs> very nicely done <laughs> Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna definitely give Buzz partial credit for that. There That's you a, go, definitely. <laughs> um, but I, Bill, I do have one thing I want to ask the representative about, which is I, I was really struck. There is uh, Frontier Regional School eighth grade students introduced an idea which you are proposing as legislation. Could you talk about that? Yeah, this was a really powerful moment uh, for for me. I, I had the opportunity to meet with some students at Frontier. And they brought a concern to me. Uh, and that was, you know, if you are purchasing menstrual products, there's no, um, there's no requirement that they put on the packaging what is included in those products. So their point was, we don't know what we are putting into our bodies. And that's a problem. And how do we change that? These are young uh, students being introduced to puberty. It's so incredible that they're that mindful of the health consequences of these products. It was really incredible. You know, they, they had a presentation. Um, you know, they talked to us about it, and we researched it. We found that California and New York have offered that have passed similar legislation. So we have taken a look at those two bills. We've modeled legislation after it and introduced it this session. Uh, Senator Comerford, as the senator for Frontier, is introducing it on the Senate side. And we'll be working with these students to be involved in the process going forward, you know, providing testimony at hearings and really trying to build momentum for this legislation to advance. 
it, it was incredibly powerful, not only for me, but I hope for them in being involved in the legislative process. It's hope in the future. Yes. I think we'll leave it there with State Representative Natalie Blay, who is with us, with us every month. We really appreciate your time and the work you do and your representation. Thank you so much, Rep. Blay. We really appreciate it. Buzz and I are going to go on to a different topic now, and we'll let you go back to legislating on our behalf. <laughs> Great to talk with you both, and hope to see you soon. Thank you, Representative. Thank you so much. So we'd like to go to another topic um, that we think is worth uh, mentioning and worth mentioning because we are going to have, we have scheduled to have on our show on Monday, the mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia. There is a report from our friends at uh, NEPM uh, written by uh, uh, Dusty Christensen, following up on a really important report that he made, oh, maybe year and a half or two years ago, about the Northampton Police Department and what happens to complaints uh, made to the department. And he followed up with a public records request and has uncovered an enormous amount of information about what happens and has happened at the Holyoke Police Department. We actually, of course, know a lot about what happens in the Springfield Police Department because the Federal Department of Justice made a report that came out, oh, couple of years ago now that said there's a pattern and practice in the Springfield Police Department of, in the Narcotics Bureau of beating people up, lying about it, covering it up, and then charging people. As bad as it gets. As bad as it gets, along with uh, the uh, 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 insight that it probably really wasn't just the Narcotics Bureau. So we know about Springfield. We know about Northampton and the complaints, although the complaints in Northampton are somewhat less vicious than the beatings that happened in Springfield. But this report about Holyoke is just devastating. As and I read it, Bill, it, you uh, clued me into it. And as I was reading it, I couldn't help but think about John Pucci the other day talking about the culture of policing in this country and the lack of leadership. Want to hit, hit a couple of the highlights you have in front of well, you? Well, yeah, I do have it in front of me, and, and I guess the biggest highlight is that um, over a period of time, there were 90 complaints um, about the about uh, by citizens about their treatment by Holyoke police officers, and of those 90, only three resulted in any kind of a response, any kind of action, and the action was, you know... Uh, negligible. It was, uh, you know, a, a verbal warning in one case. Um, and uh, j just inadequate action. So of, 97 I'm complaints. sorry, 92, 92. 92 complaints. Formal civilian complaints, and only three of them, any action, and the action was nominal. So, give or take, 96% of the complaints made about the police in Holyoke, some of them being very serious. Very serious. Very serious alleged misconduct. But out of the 92 complaints, three had some action taken? That's right. You know, there's, there was uh, the sort of way that Dusty Christensen colored it is by, he was talking about one particular incident. The incident was somebody who was a man by the name of Concepcion was working with the Holyoke Safe and Successful Youth Initiative, a program that helped youth with criminal charges or convictions get jobs and stay off the streets. And when you read about the treatment of, of Mr. Concepcion by the Holyoke police for no real reason whatsoever, the complaint which he filed and the inaction that resulted, it's chilling. It's very frightening. We do note that in the article, uh, Mayor Garcia and, in fact, all of the other or no other officials in Holyoke uh, 
cared to comment for that article. So we are looking forward to having a, an in-depth conversation with Mayor Garcia, who is scheduled to be with us on Monday. It's Mayor's Monday on our show. We're going to take a quick break now. We come back. It is Artbeat right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits? Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. It's polka carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. What's new at the Waitley Inn? Everything. The Waitley Inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area. The only thing that hasn't changed is the menu, offering classic New England fare the Waitley Inn has become famous for. The Waitley Inn is open Wednesday through Saturday starting at 4 p.m. and Sunday from 1 to 7. Pickup is also available with easy online ordering. Visit WaitleyInn.com. Eat greatly at the Waitley. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Hearing the verdict and hearing the words racial animus were extremely painful for, certainly for myself and for the women and men of the Greenfield Police Department who really do go to work every day to serve the people of Greenfield. 1015-1400-1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Hi, I'm Jay Sealer, Vice President, Commercial Lending at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. Our team of commercial lenders are here to help you and your business grow this year. I'm Laura Guzik, Vice President, Commercial Lending. We're a small business administration preferred lender, and all of our lenders at the co-op have individual lending authority, which means fast local decisions so you can get back to business. I'm Adam Baker, Vice President Commercial Lending. Are you ready to chat with one of our experienced local lenders? Visit bestlocalbank.com or meet with us in person at any of our Franklin or Hampshire County locations. Or if it's more convenient, we'll even meet you at your business. So come on over to the co-op and see me, Jay Sealer. Or me, Maura Guzik. Or me, Adam Baker. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. This Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m., Ruth Ann Lundeberg, hypnotherapist, releases certificates on the Shop 30 store. If you're feeling anxious, want to stop smoking, eat less, or drink less, whatever's got you stuck, Ruth Ann can help you get unstuck. Hypnosis has been around for thousands of years because it works. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Ruth Ann Lundeberg, hypnotherapist. Available this Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. goes on. 
And this is Artbeat. Our usual segment host, of course, is Donabel Cassis, who is, as we like to say, is on assignment, which is just code for she's on vacation. And we have with us as the in for Donabel Cassis, we have Kim Carlino, one of the Valley's great artists, who has with her and us today a very special guest. Let me turn the microphone over to Kim Carlino for the pleasure and honor of the introduction. Kim. Uh, thanks, Bill. So we have Luke Yeager on today. Welcome, Luke. Hi, thanks. Nice to be here. Yeah, so Luke is a local artist, filmmaker, and musician, studied at Yale, the School of the Museum of Fine Arts, and Mass College of Art for your MFA. Uh, and you've shown your animations all over the world. Your work's filled with humor, diaristic tendency to capture dreams and everyday occurrences and surreal landscapes. And uh, you also work at the Mount Holyoke College Makerspace, super cool. Yes. Um, and I get the sense that you're constantly creating. And um, I'm excited to have you here today to talk about your exhibition called Recent Work that's yeah. just opening at the Anchor House of Artists in Northampton. And uh, you call your exhibition Recent Work, and you work across many different mediums. So tell me what's What's on view at the Anchor House of Artists right now, and what, what mediums are you showing? Oh, okay. Well, I have a um, I have basically a truckload of paintings and drawings, and a bunch of digital artworks that um, that have been printed out, uh, and some small sculptures, uh, uh, including one that lights up and spins, uh, <laughs> and a whole bunch of animated films that I've made over the years will also be showing in the gallery. So uh, it's it's a grab bag. It's a it's a it's a big a big crazy load of stuff and uh, something for everybody. I would like to think. So yeah, Luke, yeah, you're, can I interrupt for one sec? I, I I do have some idea what a what a painting is, and I'd like to hear more about yours, and some about something about sculpture, and I'd like to hear more about yours. But what I know nothing about is digital artwork that you say you printed out. Could you just tell us a little bit more about that? Oh, sure. I mean, these are these are pieces that um, most of them started off as pencil drawings or ink drawings. And, you know, I dashed off a whole lot of these um, sometimes first thing in the morning and basically put them in a box. And then uh, at some point I will scan them um or shoot them with a with a digital still camera and work on them further in photoshop and maybe collage them together with other pieces and kind of use photoshop as a as a sort of battleground to bring in all these little bits and pieces and um uh and they're you know they're nicely printed um inkjet prints and um i don't know i kind of like that better than just displaying them on the screen because we all look at we all spend a lot of time looking at screens and i, I think like looking at a nice piece of paper sometimes feels better <laughs> let me turn the microphone back over kim carlino so how, i'm curious how like your different mediums like how how do you choose to realize idea in and with your animations are some of those drawings and paintings be used to generate content for for those animations or you know 
Uh, We're having a bit I'm of trouble. I'm going to answer the question. That, yeah, a bit of trouble yeah, with uh, Kim's audio. I'm sorry about that. But she was asking okay. about, about the animation that you discussed that you told us. Okay, about. yes. I'll answer the question that I think I heard. Um, uh, so, yeah, the animation is also an extension of, of, of that same, um, my same practice. And I actually, you know, when I, when people used to ask me when I was six years old what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would say I wanted to be an animator. Uh, and, and I actually went ahead and learned how to do it in school. And um, I did work in the business for a little while, but I, I more enjoy just working on my own projects at my own pace. Um, and um, yeah, a lot of them are based in <clears throat> dream imagery and memories and sort of my internal landscape. Um, you know, dreams to me are like this unlimited source of copyright free subject matter. <laughs> just like my, your brain just, just spews them out and all you gotta do is put out a bucket and collect it. So it's uh, it's a great sort of way to make images. This, I, is, I this is Buzz, yeah. you're, you're talking about your brain. Uh, because it sounds like well, you're, that's you're, the only one I know about. That's yeah, right. That's the only one I can really talk about. <laughs> and and you just sound of, like uh, they, you know, with all the. <laughs> I know what you everyone mean. Everyone else's brain. I'm sorry to say, is that's, that's everybody else's business. But <laughs> that's okay. You know, I mean, it's it's, and um, you well, know, that's my that's my when, question. When I really. go to a museum or a gallery or, or 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 read a comic book or or watch a cartoon, I'm always what I'm looking for is like what does the world look like to somebody else? I want to know what the world looks like to somebody else because I know what it looks like to me. But, uh, you know, to me, that's sort of the, that's what makes it interesting. Today is the first so, day of, of, of the exhibit, as I understand it. Is there an, a talk that you're giving, an artist's talk? Um, there's an opening reception. I don't think an artist talk is necessarily part of it, but I will certainly be there and I will certainly be talking and you can find me and ask me anything. Uh, I'm, I, there's, no, there's no formal talk scheduled uh, as far as I know. The opening there's is two today, other though. artists on the bill too because Anchor has multiple rooms and they have multiple artists showing at the same time. So we're all having an opening together and the other two artists who I was happy to meet over the last few days uh both do really interesting stuff as well so i, I think the shows will all uh i, I it, it'll be interesting because it'll be an interesting sort of collision of different people's work and the opening is this afternoon again at the anchor house of artists uh this evening at, at anchor house of artists um i i believe it starts at six um which is 518 pleasant street kim Hi, can you, how's, how's this? That's better. better. Am I coming through? Okay, sorry about that. Sure. Um, so I'm curious about, you know, you said like you knew at six that you wanted to get into animation and like, you know, you also talk about how you have this influence of early thirties um, cartoons and, you know, watching some of your animations, you know, you can, see that kind of capsule in influence of those and different time like i remember watching um you know like as a kid just cartoons were so different and so you know i'm i'm curious like if you could talk about that that influence and like on your animations and 
you know, I, I just, I really enjoyed looking at your work. Like, I can't wait to see, I hope like crumbs is beyond view. Oh, it will. Yes, for sure. Okay. Yeah, you, um, they're really, they're really interesting. And so I, I just I'd love to hear more about that influence. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah. Um, glad you, glad you enjoyed it. Um, I mean, yeah, those old cartoons from the 1930s, they were, they were on TV when I was a kid. You could turn on your TV on Saturday morning and you would get this crazy assortment of stuff and you never knew it was, it was just this random assortment. I think they were just pulling stuff out of some bin and, and putting it on the air. I, you know, and um, those very old, <clears throat> the, you know, cartoons from the earliest days of, um, of, of films with sound, so like late 1920s, 1928, 29, and um, up through the 1930s, uh, those early Popeye cartoons and those um, those black and white Betty Boop cartoons, <clears throat> they're just um, they're just sort of manic and and they have this yeah. unhinged quality that really appealed to me uh, when I was a kid. Uh, yeah, that, that this world is kind of the world that these characters were in these in these old. I mean, if you've never seen one of these cartoons, they're on YouTube, and and it's well <laughs> they, worth your time. So we we are, we are we are going to have to leave it there. I'm sorry. Out here, um, but we are everyone, Kim. You know, Kim, we, we got to run. We got to run. They're going. Oh. Radio Land is going <laughs> to cut us off. We really do. We this has been Artbeat. We've been speaking with Kim Carlino and Luke Yeager, whose show opens today at the Anchor House of Artists here in Northampton. Sounds fascinating. We thank you both very much. Thanks so much. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. Want to know more about local history, literature, and education? Hilltown Families bi-monthly Learning Ahead Cultural Itineraries offer an easy way to delve into Western Mass culture and traditions. These new seasonal itineraries are produced in collaboration with a humanities scholar and community education expert, offering ways for self-directed teens and lifelong learners to engage in learning that helps shape a sense of place. Funded by a year-long grant from Mass Humanities, you can download guides Live anytime, free of charge, at Hilltownfamilies.com. The Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10. With Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. Bill, there is um, once again on the front page of the Globe another heartbreaking report. This one out of Andover, where the Andover police say that yesterday a 56 year old man shot and killed his wife, turned his weapon on their sixth grade 12-year-old son, killed him before turning the weapon on himself. This on the heels of last week's unthinkable... And killed himself? This is a homicide-suicide? It's a homicide-suicide. Another homicide-suicide here in Andover. Uh, in Mattapan, a 13-year-old Tyler Lawrence was shot dead as he walked near his grandparents' home. Um, we could keep going every day. Twelve children die from gun violence in America. 
Another 32 are shot and injured every day. The last year, the most recent year for which complete data is available is 2020 right now. There are, about, there are over 45,000 deaths by gun violence. About 54% of those gun-related deaths in the United States were suicides, something over 24,000 suicides, and 43% were murders or non-negligent manslaughters. That's something over 19,000. It is uh, an unthinkable epidemic. We think about one pandemic, but in fact, um, it is an epidemic. Uh, with us, joining us today to talk about it is the executive director of the Massachusetts Coalition to Prevent Gun Violence, Ruth Zacharin. Hello, Ruth. Hi, thank you so much for having me this morning. So, Thank you so much for joining us on this uh, heartbreaking issue that just doesn't seem to go away. Um, I think I want to start, Ruth, with you've had a lot of years working uh, in this dark, dark place involving violence here in the Commonwealth and beyond. Could you tell us how did you get interested in this issue, gun violence, and violence in general? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, prior to coming to the coalition, I spent over 25 years working with survivors of domestic and sexual violence. Uh, and I come to that work uh, because of my own family history and some of the stories that I grew up with. My grandfather imparted some family history, which included dealing with violence that he was seeing in his own home. And that really led me to be to think a lot about the impact of violence on families, and that was the path that I chose. Um, I started working at a community health center in Camden, New Jersey, um, around this work. And when I moved up to Massachusetts, uh, I started working at the Elizabeth Stonehouse in Boston and have spent you know, many years working with survivors and thinking about safety uh, and trying to make sure that folks had the support that they need in the aftermath of violence in their relationships and the aftermath of sexual assault. And also did a lot of work with children, particularly children who were witnessing domestic violence, who had experienced violence or sexual assault, as well as children in the aftermath of a domestic violence homicide. And I would say that that work is really what brought me to be thinking about the narrative of guns in our society, sitting in really close proximity to the trauma of children who had lost a parent, mostly their mother, to a domestic violence homicide, most often perpetrated with a gun. And just thinking, how do we make this different? How do we prevent this from happening to begin with? And trauma response work is incredibly important. But I started getting itchy to swim a little farther upstream and think about what we could do to prevent the trauma from happening at all. And that's what really led me to be interested in the work of gun violence prevention and seek this opportunity at the coalition. I'm actually the inaugural executive director, and it's been an incredible journey of really learning about all the different facets of gun violence, the impact of guns in our country and in the Commonwealth, and be bringing some of the experience I have working with survivors of violence to the forefront of how we think about solutions. So let's talk a little bit about the coalition. It is a coalition, the Massachusetts Coalition to Prevent Gun Violence. Could you tell us about the organization, when it was founded, what you do? 
Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, we were founded a little over 10 years ago in the aftermath of the shooting at Sandy Hook. A group of volunteers came together, folks from faith communities, as well as some community-based organizations like the Lewis B. Brown Peace Institute, uh, to think about what needed to happen in the Commonwealth to prevent such a thing from happening here. Uh, and the group that came together did a lot of legislative advocacy, was very involved in the passing of the 2014 Comprehensive Gun Reform Law, which really shapes a lot of the ways that we think about licensing and access to guns in the Commonwealth now. And then from that, the work grew and the interest grew and more organizations joined um, and we started hiring staff. And we are now a coalition of over 125 organizations from across the Commonwealth as well as our national partners. And we have three full-time staff soon to expand to four. Uh, and we do a number of different kinds of work uh, because we believe that a holistic response to gun violence is really important. That's based on policy change, sustained investment, and community-based solutions and lifting up data and research. And to that end, we engage still in a lot of legislative advocacy as well as um, advocacy around budget line items and resource allocation to make sure that we are funding violence prevention robustly, do a great deal of public education and awareness, we're a full-time community organizer, and uh, coalition building and bringing our coalition members into all aspects of how we think about this work and decision making. I'd like to follow up about your work because, as I understand it, Massachusetts has some of the strictest gun control laws in the country. We also have the lowest uh, homicide and suicide rate by guns in the country, which for the most part, I think, means that what we've done here has been effective from a public health point of view. And yet Buzz started this segment by saying, look at all the gun violence we have in Massachusetts, leading me to this question. What are we overlooking? What still needs to be addressed? Yeah, and I think holding both, you know, we have a good foundation in Massachusetts, and we do believe that if all states, if in fact across the country, adopted the same practices, that we would see many fewer deaths from guns. But there's still much work to do. Uh, one death is too many, and we're having way too many deaths. It's been a really traumatic start to 2023. And, you know, the answer in terms of what we're overlooking, it isn't simple because it's such a complex issue that takes complex solutions. We know that we can continue to strengthen our laws and our policies, and we're working on that now. At, you know, we just started a new legislative session. We have a lot of things that we're working on in this legislative session, and we are um, optimistic that we will see movement to continue to strengthen our laws. But we also need to do more to support communities that have been most impacted by gun violence. In terms of firearm suicides, there's still so much work that needs to be done around our mental health system, but also recognizing that means matter. And when somebody is in crisis, they need to not be close to a gun because that is a particularly lethal means for committing suicide. And we need to invest in our young people. We are seeing our young people struggle in the world, and the pandemic has been, you know, devastating on so many levels. And also during the pandemic, while our kids were struggling, while some of our 
services and resources got disrupted for so many kids and so many families, there was a huge uptick in sales of guns, including here in the Commonwealth. So we, we have many different things that we need to continue to work on. And, you know, these recent situations that were mentioned at the beginning, uh, the domestic violence, murder, suicide in Andover, the shooting of a 13-year-old in Mattapan, you know, they're beyond a call to action. It, it's really a clarion call for us to continue to work to make sure that everyone is safe in their homes, that everyone is safe in their communities. We still have more to do. We have so much more to do. And, you know, it's the number one cause of death, gun violence for uh, youth under the age of 24. It, it's just statistic after statistic. It just makes your head reel. Uh, I'm concerned always about, you know, this polarization we think about every day we hear screaming from our television sets about our country, but the difference in gun violence attitudes between gun owners and non-owners is so dramatic. It's, you know, there's a, there's a gulf that's so enormous. How can the coalition and the other organizations with which you are affiliated make a difference in terms of convincing those who own guns and thinks that that's an important part of their life uh, and get them to encourage reasonable gun regulation along with what you encourage. Yeah, you know, and I think um, gun ownership and preventing gun violence are not are two diametrically opposed things. So, you know, I think that there is some feeling that all gun violence prevention is about, um, you know, we're the Second Amendment or taking away everyone's guns. That, that's actually not our work. We are approaching gun violence as a public health crisis and really looking at public health solutions to preventing violence. And for me, it's really about drilling down into core values that I think we can all share. When we hear about a 13-year-old being killed, I think we can all agree that that just shouldn't happen. A middle school student should not be shot and killed. That just shouldn't happen. And I think if we can come together around the core value of every child has a right to be safe and every child in every community has a right to be safe, then we can have conversations, even if we disagree about what the solutions look like, we can agree that children have a right to be safe. We can agree that there should be less bloodshed in this country, even if we have a hard time seeing eye to eye on what the path forward looks like. Well, we are talking to Ruth Sacron. Could you tell people how they could get in touch with the coalition and what our listeners can do? We're going to take a break and in about 30 seconds and then come back and talk more with you, Ruth. So just let people know how to contact you. Yeah, thank you. Um, you can catch us on our website, which is mapreventgunviolence.org. We're also on all the social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Uh, and when you go on our website, you can sign up for our action alerts. That's how we inform folks about what we're up to, either with advocacy work at the state house, public education events, but it's a great way to stay abreast of what we are doing. I also saw a donate button there, didn't I? Yes, and supporting our work with a contribution is really appreciated. We are trying to grow our impact and increase our staffing capacity, which we're about to do, but really make sure that we can continue to sustain and grow this work. As you mentioned before, um, there's still a, 
far too much gun violence here in the Commonwealth, and we're committed to continuing to bring the level of trauma from guns down. We are going to continue our conversation with Ruth Sackerin, the executive director of the Massachusetts Coalition to Prevent Gun Violence, right after these brief messages. Stay with us. Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Modest, very minimal increase in the police budget, largely uh, due to just regular contractual um, obligations. Holyoke is nothing like Northampton and Greenfield. The quality of life uh, issues or demographics, very, very different. So I can never compare our police departments. The challenges we have going on in our city are very, very different. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. It's recommended you dress them scantily to accentuate their volume and complement their flavor profile. Atlas Farms Wintergreen Salad Mix. Five unique greens in a harmonious blend that tastes like this time of year. Decorate your salad with a colorful confetti of watermelon radish or purple daikon. Add crumbled goat cheese or roasted pumpkin seeds. Summer salads are nice, but winter salads are entirely unto themselves. Get a bag of winter salad mix at the Atlas Farm Store in South Deerfield. If your Spanish-speaking employees spoke better English, would that be good for business? If your English-speaking employees spoke a little Spanish, would that be good for business? The International Language Institute delivers workplace language training, improving communication among coworkers and with customers. You get financial assistance with the Massachusetts Workplace Training Express Fund. They cover 50 to 100% of the cost. So let's get going. Call or email the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. Imagine working hard for so many years and reaching your retirement only to find out there's an issue with your pension or 401k. Unfortunately, it's a problem too many Americans face. The New England Pension Assistance Project can help you get the benefits you've earned by providing free legal help. Contact the New England Pension Assistance Project at 888-425-6067 or visit them online at pensionhelp.org slash New England. A public service from the U.S. Administration on Aging's Pension Counseling and Information Program. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we are back with Executive Director Ruth Zacharin of the Massachusetts Coalition to Prevent Gun Violence, uh, an organization that has such an important mission at a time when there's just so much gun violence. Bill was asking before the break. Bill, you had a question of Ruth. I, I, I do. Um, and we're turning to my question about uh, Massachusetts in particular and the gun laws that we have that have given us the lowest homicide rate by, uh, by firearms in the country. Um, well, to which I say, good for us. I'd like to know, though, since the recent shooting deaths, the homicides, the suicides, uh, show that clearly there is, well, I'm not so sure clearly, but clearly that w- what we have in place does not prevent uh, these kinds of tragedies, and I'm wondering what kind of specific legislative proposals there are to try to increase gun safety here in the Commonwealth. 
Yeah, and I will, I'm happy to share with you some of our legislative priorities and some of the policy changes that we are looking for. Uh, and I just also want to make sure that I'm clear in saying that gun violence prevention is about legislation. It is about good policymaking, but it's also about how it's good practice. It's about how we support young people, how we support families, how we invest in communities. So this piece is incredibly important. And I would also love to talk a little bit more about uh, the other ways that we can meaningfully engage in gun violence prevention work. But in terms of the policy piece, we have um, many different bills that we are advocating for in this session. And we're actually optimistic, again, that there will be some movement on these. Some of the bills that we are looking at, one is the crime gun data analysis bill, which compels the state to do a more regular and thorough analysis of the data collected from guns in the aftermath of a traumatic event, so we can better understand where those guns are coming from and how they're landing in communities. We're also talking a lot about better regulation of ghost guns, and if you're not familiar with that term, uh, it refers to basically you get the parts of a gun in a kit, usually online. You assemble it at home, so there's no serial number on it, so it's untraceable and therefore a ghost gun. And we know that, that more and more ghost guns are getting picked up in communities across the country, but also here in Massachusetts. So better regulation of those untraceable guns is another important policy that we're looking at. Um, in addition, there's some policies around industry accountability, um, which I think are a really important piece of how we hold manufacturers accountable uh, for, you know, in the aftermath of shootings as well. And then we have some policies that are about the intersection of juvenile justice reform and violence prevention, because we know that how we care for young people, including system-involved young people, is foundational to violence prevention. So we're working with our friends at Citizens for Juvenile Justice on a, a couple of different policy priorities. One's called Raise the Age, which moves 18, 19, and 20-year-olds who are justice-involved out of the adult system and back into the juvenile system because they get more services and support and outcomes improve and there's less violence in the future. We're also thinking about things like juvenile diversion. So we have a range of policies that are about the guns themselves, but also root causes of gun violence that we're advocating for in this session. Uh, Ruth, you are uh, the executive director of a coalition. What I assume that the coalition part of it means that you are partnered with other uh, organizations and agencies that uh, have a similar mission. Is that right? Yeah, we have an, a, lots of different kinds of organizations that have become members of the coalition, folks who are um, working directly in community with young people and doing violence intervention and prevention, other advocacy organizations, hospitals, faith-based communities have joined the coalition. So it's really a range of different kinds of organizations that all share a common goal, which is to decrease the trauma of gun violence in our communities. Let me ask this. The, the data and the analysis, as I understand it from mental health professionals, is that what is the precipitating factor of gun violence is the availability of the gun. And it seems to me, and I'd love for you to talk me off this ledge, Ruth, if you could please, it seems to me that absent 
uh, I guess, more effective red flag laws um, that once the guns are in a household, if they are accessible, big if, because they're supposed to be locked and not accessible, but accessible to young people in particular, um, we're going to have tragedies. And that's the crux of the matter. And if I have that wrong, please tell me. I'd love to be talked off this ledge. Yeah, no, you you don't have it wrong because access to guns increases risk in so many different ways. So just one example is that the presence of a gun in the home makes it five more five times more likely that someone will be killed when there's already domestic violence happening. So if someone is being victimized by a partner, they are five times more likely to be killed if there's also a gun available. We know that access to guns really increases rates of suicide because guns are the most lethal means of um, committing suicide. So a lot of data. And actually, I was just looking yesterday. We have seen across the country a 61% increase in firearm suicides in young people between 2011 and 2020. And a big part of that is because there are just more guns in circulation. And if those guns are not safely stored, and they're accessible to young people, then tragic things happen. So safe storage is incredibly important. Red flag laws, as you mentioned, so here in the Commonwealth, we call it an extreme risk protection order, or ERPO. And ERPO allows for the temporary removal of guns from someone who is deemed to be at risk of harming themselves or someone else. And having those policies in place is incredibly important, but and specifically with ERPO, it's not just about having those policies in place. It's making sure the general public knows that an ERPO is available. So we definitely want to raise awareness about the availability of ERPO so that folks know that that tool is available to them. Okay. Um, Ruth, I, I'm so um, – I'm, I'm looking right now. Unfortunately, my our Internet is out here, and it's difficult for me to re- – recapture it, but I remember when I taught criminology, at one point, I think 37%, according to a Pew uh, research model that was done of over 3,000 people, I think this is like 2015, um, but well more than a third of all guns that are owned in this country uh, were kept in unlocked, and were loaded and kept in unlocked places. Is that consistent with what your understanding is? Different from state to state, I haven't heard that that statistic specifically. And fortunately, here in Massachusetts, we do have safe storage laws, and we do have better rates of um, firearms being stored appropriately. But you know, again, to your point, we know that um, when children are living in homes with unsecured guns, the tragic things can happen. Um, that are often kept loaded because people say they're going to defend their home if anybody invades it. It's it's a, a crazy situation with children in the home having access to loaded weapons. Yeah, and there's not a lot of data to support the use of defensive, defensive gun use. You know, there's just there's not a lot to support this idea that you need to have a gun and that's actually going to keep you safer. And unfortunately, the narrative that the NRA and other groups have pushed is that guns do keep you safer and the, the data just doesn't support that. Well... Uh, it is clear. I hope that listeners, we are talking with uh, Ruth Zacharin, the executive director of the Massachusetts Coalition to Prevent Gun Violence. I uh, hope that uh, listeners um, heard the legislation which you are proposing through the coalition 
uh, for our legislature to undertake and um, that they can uh, actively contact their legislators and uh, promote such legislation. But tell us what else a listener, what would you have a listener do um, to take away from this discussion? Yeah, you know, I think the more that we talk to our family, our friends about this issue and push back on some of the myths, one primary one being that guns make us safer. And so taking the data, uh, whether it's from this conversation or from our website, to push back on some of those messages feels really important because there is this narrative that's happening in this country that feels really dangerous. And the more people who are using facts and data to counter that, I think the safer we will be. Well, thank you so much for that. Ruth Zacharin, um, the executive director of the Coalition to Prevent Gun Violence, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate being here with you. Thank you. We are going to take a break. When we come back, um, we're going to have a conversation here with Dan Torres, who has read the entire January 6th committee 800-plus page report, and we're going to be talking about that right after these messages. Stay with us. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Amherst Town Council is considering a request to State Senator Joe Comerford and State Rep Mindy Dom to file a special act that would allow lawful non-citizen residents the ability to register to vote. This would then need to be approved by legislature. If successful, the town would join several other communities in adopting the measure, including Northampton and Warwick. The council is referring the special act for review by its Governance, Organization, and Legislation Committee next week. A judge has ordered the deportation of a commercial truck driver from Ukraine who was taken into custody by immigration authorities last year, shortly after he was acquitted of causing the deaths of seven motorcyclists in New Hampshire. 27-year-old Vladimir Zukovsky of West Springfield had a series of immigration hearings after he was acquitted in August on seven counts of manslaughter, seven counts of negligent homicide, and one count of reckless conduct. The charges stem from a June 21, 2019 crash in Randolph, New Hampshire that killed seven members of the Jarheads Motorcycle Club, an organization of Marine Corps veterans and their spouses. The town of East Hampton has signed a contract with an engineering firm to develop a plan that will allow the city to examine the city's dependence on fossil fuels and see how effective some of the projects underway are helping to reduce the carbon output. Mayor Nicola Chappelle tells the Gazette her climate action plan will help the city tackle the looming effects of climate change and give officials the ability to identify action steps to decarbonize East Hampton as soon as possible. Partly to mostly sunny today, windy and mild, a high of 48 to 52. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 30s, an overnight low of 22 to 28. Mostly sunny tomorrow, 38 to 42. Sun cloud mix back into the upper 40s on Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Skates cutting the ice and sticks pounding boards. The slap of the puck and a peel off the post. The chirp of the whistle and the blaring of the horn. 
Hockey is here. Tune in for all the sounds of the season right here on the UMass Sports Network. 101.5, 1400-1240-WHMP. Getting your credit score and credit report free is another great reason to bank at Greenfield Savings Bank. With the GSP Credit Center, you can monitor your credit score and credit report as often as you like, set up alerts, and find tips on how to improve your credit score. Getting your credit score and credit report free is another great reason to bank at Greenfield Savings Bank. With the GSP Credit Center, you can monitor your credit score and credit report as often as you like, set up alerts, and find tips on how to improve your credit score. Monitoring your credit score and report is an important tool in protecting your finances and can help you identify errors and prevent fraud. Our GSB Credit Center is just one of the great benefits that comes free with both our free online banking and our free mobile app. And with the GSB mobile app, you can check your score and access your credit report free anytime and from anywhere using your mobile device. And checking your credit report at the GSB Credit Center will not affect your credit score. Sign up today at any of our offices or online. Greenfield Savings Bank. Greenfieldsavings.com. Member FDIC. Member DIF. Mobile carrier charges may apply. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone, two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And uh, we are back. You know, uh, you hear, listeners hear about Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on Talk the Talk. But um, often unheard of is our producer and uh, sound engineer, Dan Torres, who, for those who don't know, is an, uh, he's a student of politics and a uh, very well-read guy, smart guy. And unlike me, when the January 6th committee uh, issued its 800-page-plus report with a 150-page summary, Dan dug his heels in for about a few weeks, Dan? A few weekends, yeah. It took me a, like two or three weekends to, to read the whole report. What I did is I avoided the executive summary, and I went through chapter by chapter, and I was reading the entire report. See, just like I went right to the classic comics... I used to go right to the executive summaries. <laughs> well, but, you know, I, this has been uh, going on for a long time now. And so I wanted to at least spend the time so I could read uh, the entire report and uh, highlight the sections um, that I thought were important and took notes on that. Well, let me just talk. Uh, I'm going to start. Well, I'm going to just turn the mic over to you. But I just want to start with something you said to me uh, that was very interesting. Which you don't even think the title is right. It shouldn't be called the January Sixth Report. What did you mean by that? Yeah. So we were talking about this before we got on air, and uh, my impression after finishing the entire report is that we should stop calling it January Sixth, because this was really a organized plot to not turn over power to a duly elected uh, President Joe Biden. And when you, when you realize in this report that it goes back much further than January 6th, January 6th is just a culmination of failures of a strategy that was tried back at least starting election night. 
and going on behind the scenes. And so when January 6th happened and I was in front of the computer working here at the station, you know, you understand it as this is happening on January 6th. Something went out of control. The report sheds light and says, yes, January 6th was an event that happened in Washington, D.C. But here's what happened previously. Here's what happened late leading up to this. And that means, you know, when you call it January 6th, are you including all the other events that went behind the scenes, um, starting at least from election night and actually before that, but at least you could start from election night on until January 6th, there was a concerted effort to stop the transfer of power. Yeah, and, and it as early as October of 2015, uh, uh, you know, yeah, a I, year be before the election, Donald Trump said, if I'm not elected, it's because it's been rigged. It's been rigged. And he repeated that claim, by the way, the report also mentions that he repeated that claim in 2020. It's somebody who says, uh, yeah, I'll tell you if I agree with the election results after I see the election results. I mean, it just it's it's like going to play with somebody and then them saying, well, I'm not sure I'm going to follow the rules. I'll let you know if I follow the rules. OK, so we're going to change the title yeah. to the causes and consequences of the big lie. But tell us, <laughs> could you outline the report yeah. for those? I'll, of us who I'll, I'll outline it. I think, it, you know, so I, I understood it when I read the entire thing as multiple steps. And I think the first step that they discuss is really election night. And something they called the red mirage, which was very interesting to me because I hadn't heard that term before. But what that means is that the Republicans knew that on election night they would be ahead. So it was really important that Trump and other Trump officials would declare victory because that way, if you do that, then you can say, look, if the, if the votes change and it favors Joe Biden, you knew on election night that Trump was up. So the so earliest that, voting re results to come in were going to be red. Absolutely. So they, yep, they were going to be red, right? Because Republicans tended to vote on the same day. They were going to go in the booths. There wasn't early voting. There wasn't mail-in voting. There wasn't any of that. It was get in that booth and vote. And they knew they were going to be ahead because the tallies were going to count them first, the Republican voters. So that's the way you can kind of begin to say this is a plot against us. Right. Against Trump and Republicans by saying we were up, you went to bed and we were up in all of these states. But then the voting of early voting, you know, uh, ballot voting and all of that came in. And then they could say, you see, it's fraud. All of that is fake. You knew the results were right. So it starts with the premise the, that what happened, they took it away from us. We were ahead. So the red mirage really created that. And, and of course, this is all spread on social media. You know, one of the effects of, of the media is it's great. It, there's a lot of information. Everybody can produce things. But at the same time, you get conspiracy theories. You get lies, right? So immediately when the voting continued the day after the election, things began to change in the battleground states. And really, those are the key. And everybody knows them, right? Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, right? And when you begin to see that Joe Biden started catching up in those states, QAnon conspiracy came up and all of these, uh, you know, Dominion voting machines, right? They had to come up with everything you're seeing is fraud because of these machines and there's a plot. And it spreads to people's phones. I mean, today in our media landscape, uh, information targets individuals. The individual doesn't need to look for information. They just open up their phone and the information is there. And people, uh, honestly, I don't think do a very good job of vetting information because there's so much and you kind of want to believe that, you know, this is being taken away from us. You know, you, you kind of want to believe that you know this secret and the rest of the society is believing, you know, the, the fake uh, news, right? The, and made up news. So um, I think that you know, you got to think about the red mirage spreading conspiracy theories, but then really started, I think, their campaign efforts um, and the, the campaign efforts 
begin in the courts, right? A very legal process that both of your lawyers, both of you know much better than I do. But the process is intimidate the courts. They just started filing cases, and they have every right to do that. Um, they filed 62 cases. Uh, 30 of them, almost half, were just dismissed on the merits during the first hearing. So the judges were just like, you have no evidence for this. You need a uh, little evidence to prove this. To, yeah. to prove this, right? And uh, I think they won, the, the report said they won one case, and it changed almost really no votes. It was very minor. But um, so then, so they intimidated the courts. But then the other strategy that I learned was how much pressure Donald Trump put on Republicans throughout those battleground states, the state legislatures, the head of the state legislature in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, right? He was calling them, um, meeting with them, putting pressure both privately on the phone, but also publicly on social media, right? Saying, you got to do the right thing, call a special session. And all of their goals was to invalidate Joe Biden's uh, electoral win in so those the states. the January 6th committee and the aides that work for it, the lawyers who work for it, they're talking with all of these individuals in, in these various states, even at the very local level, to find out what their experience was during that election. Yeah, and they wanted to call them special sessions and do whatever they could le uh, through legislation to overturn the, the will of the voters, essentially. And, and it, was a, it was an effort. Over 200 state legislatures in battleground states were contacted. Right. It was, it was never made to me very clear that this was happening. But that's a lot of people that the president of the United States can get on the phone and begin to put pressure on local Republican officials in those key states to say, you need to do this for me. Go out there and say that the votes were rigged against us. Um, but then the other thing that they did, I thought that I hadn't fully appreciated or understood was the pressure they meaning the, the committee. The, I'm sorry, the Donald Trump. Uh, oh, and, Donald and, Trump. Yeah, put on the Department of Justice. This was really fascinating to me uh, in reading the report because you have a guy like Jeffrey Clark, who most people haven't heard of. He who is was that? an environmental lawyer. He's an environmental lawyer is essentially what he does. He works for the management bureau in there. And essentially when Bill Barr resigned, okay, and this is now when December roughly, Trump wanted to appoint and offered Jeffrey Clark that position as attorney general, as attorney, acting, acting, attorney, attorney, acting general. attorney general. And essentially he got that position because he promised the president, you appoint me, I'm going to go and find information for you. I'm going to find the dirt. I'm going to find all of this. And then there's this amazing meeting. And the report really goes into all the details about January 3rd, Donahue and uh, uh, Rosen were other officials in the Department of Justice, high up officials. It was the attacking, acting attorney general at that point. And they said, I will demand an emergency meeting with Jeffrey Clark, Trump and a bunch of officials. And they all sit around and say, you appoint Jeffrey Clark and we're all resigning on the same day. And it wasn't just Donahue and Rosen. It was the entire ass assistant attorney generals across the country. And that was the threat that stopped Donald Trump from appointing Jeffrey Clark as acting attorney general. Now, now, Jeffrey Clark also told them, hey, if you don't want me to be attorney general, that's OK. You know what I can do? Um, I, I won't accept the position. But can you just sign off on this letter that I'm going to go send to Georgia? And in this letter, it was a threat. It was basically telling the state officials in Georgia that you need to invalidate your votes. There are corrupt votes, essentially saying that the votes that came out of Georgia were corrupt and fake. And if Donahue and Rosen were willing to sign that, he would say, I don't want the position, right? And then what it says to me is it took Rosen and Donahue telling Trump, we will all resign on the same day, so will the assistant attorney generals that you appointed. We will all resign in mass. 
And Donald Trump realized at that point that if that were to happen, it wouldn't matter if I put Jeffrey Clark in there. He wouldn't get anything done. There would be no investigation. The, the fallout would be so massive on him that he reneged. But that's what it took. It, it took essentially individuals threatening mass resignation to stop a person who should have never been appointed attorney general. He had no qualifications. None. None. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, could you stop on this question yeah, of Georgia for a minute? Uh, what I'd like to know, because I had, had to put this, read the executive summary. What I'd like to know. The first it, 150 pages. <laughs> and not all that thoroughly, honestly. Um, it seems to me it's like a story that I saw in real time on television with the committee. But that aside for a moment, pardon my, pardon my laziness and ignorance, but I would like to know, does the report set out a case for obstruction of justice or interference with election that criminally could be prosecuted against Donald Trump for what he did with regard to trying to change the electoral votes, votes from Georgia? Georgia. <clears throat> You know, uh, when I was reading that chapter uh, discussing Georgia, um, I don't feel like they they went in in depth and, and would have enough evidence, not at least in that published report. Um, they they did talk about what he did with Raffensperger, the, the secretary of state and Kemp and uh, the governor and the pressure he put on them. But they didn't go in depth in the details that I think w would have been needed um, to show that, in fact, uh, Donald Trump um, was was obstructing that vote, in my opinion. Did they go, does it. the report go into that famous phone call? All you need to do is find yes. what is eleven thousand yeah, eighty two votes. It does it does mention that. I mean, and if that's enough to charge him, and then I guess it's all the information's out there um, right now. I, I did want to talk about Georgia from another perspective. So there was an, you know intimidation of the courts. Um, there was intimidation of the Department of Justice, but there was also intimidation of election workers. And I feel like we don't talk enough about that, specifically in Georgia. Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, mother and daughter, African-American women, just counting the votes. And they were specifically targeted, not only by Trump, but by other officials, online and also in person. They went after them personally and attacked them. And, and at one point, people were at their house essentially threatening and intimidating them, they were told by the police, I, I don't remember if it was the FBI or the police who told them, you need to leave your home. Your life is under threat of violence. And that, that to me just, just tells you that that's how serious things got for election workers whose job and responsibility count votes. By the way, the accusations that they committed fraud or exchanging information were actually investigated by the FBI. So when, when Trump and officials were saying, these people, they're counting uh, fake votes, they're doing all of this, the FBI actually goes over there and starts asking them questions. For all of them, they started they're having to do some due diligence. They find out there's nothing, but it doesn't stop what's happening online. Doesn't stop the intimidation, doesn't stop people from going to their home with bullhorns attacking them at night, calling their house. I mean, there were threats. They had to call the police. It's, it's incredibly um, disconcerting to see that that happens to election workers who are doing their job and, and, and uh, you know, doing their responsibility that they were hired to do as election workers. Um, that, that to me, especially the case of uh, Ruby Freeman and, and Shea Moss, really, really is, is chilling to read in the report. So let me just make sure I understand. You're saying that the January 6th report does not really set out a compelling – doesn't mean that they don't have the information. It's just not in the report. Yeah. Or they don't have the information or they couldn't make it public or the, yeah. the – or, or there's an ongoing law, law investigation. Law enforcement in Georgia doesn't want it public at this point. At this point. But 
That said, it does seem that what happened in Georgia was a significant part of this overall plan to make sure, to try to ensure that the election, the presidential election, would go to Donald Trump regardless of the facts and the votes. Yeah. Is that right? That is correct. But I think the report does a really good job at saying it's not just Georgia. This happened in Michigan. This happened in Pennsylvania. This happened in Wisconsin and in Arizona as well. I mean, this was an effort across the board on many states. But I think Republicans felt like they should have won Georgia. You know, of all the battleground states, Georgia's the one that's closest to Republican, uh, the body of work. It's the reddest. It's the reddest over there. And it's like, how did how did that happen? How did how did Trump lose Georgia? It doesn't make any sense. Right. It's it's a red state. Um, So I think that that's why it got special attention. I think that's that's why people felt like they could intimidate the local officials there. I will say this, and maybe you to agree or disagree with my opinion about uh, elections. In many ways, after reading this, I'm glad that elections are decentralized to the states. If we had had stronger national uh, uh, voting laws where somebody like Trump could appoint officials at the national level to count votes and to make sure the votes are valid, there is a potential for political influence at the federal level. Well, he would have, he I would think. Have. We, but is that your opinion or is that's that the opinion, opinion that, that was opinion. in the report? No, that was my opinion. That's just my that's my takeaway. One of the takeaways I had for this. And by the way, before we go, there were just three quotes here that stood out that made me laugh at how absurd things got. And I just they're going to be very quick. OK, so when Trump was talking to people at DOJ, OK, um, in his White House, this is after the election. And they told them, listen, all of these lies and fabrications that you're reading online, they're not true. His response, and this is a quote, you guys might not be following the Internet the way I do. I mean, just I, I don't know what an official would say in response to that. But I just found that to be funny to just say, like, if you're following the Internet the way I do, you believe me. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that's a fine statement from Donald Trump, because they can all say, Mr. President, you're right. Which right. is what he's looking for. Exactly what he's looking for. And then, and then you know, he, Trump called Pence uh, words like... Careful, when, careful, I know, careful. I know, I know. But one, one that he used also that I just made me laugh was, I don't want to be your friend anymore. And I, mean, I just <laughs> thought that was just so funny. I was Sixth just like, grade. And was he going to take grade. his ball and go home too? Take his home, right. yeah, absolutely. Sixth and then the last one, Giuliani might have summed up their entire strategy. And we'll end with this. In one meeting he had with a bunch of officials, he goes... We've got a lot of theories. We just don't have the evidence. It's just like, guys, is there any conversation where anybody says, maybe we don't have the evidence because the theories are wrong? Where was that statement all those years of litigation? Why didn't I know to say that to the judge? We do have to take a break. Yeah, Your Honor, believe me, we just don't have evidence. We're going to be right back after these messages with more of Dan Torres and the January 6th Committee's report. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed and get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015-1400-1240. WHMP.
Looking for the perfect place to watch the game? Hi, I'm Caleb Hiliadis, head brewer of Amherst Brewing. Make the Hangar Pub and Grill your go-to spot to catch all the action this season. Our famous wings come with your choice of 26 flavors, and with 25 years of beer making experience, there's an Amherst Brewing beer for every drinker. Now that's a winning combo. Join us for weekly trivia nights in Amherst, Westfield, Agawam, South Hadley, and Greenfield. Visit HangarPub.com for more of what we have cooking and brewing today. What is Brockton, Massachusetts known for? For me, Brockton means a good night's sleep because Brockton is where they make therapeutic mattresses. Not Tempur-Pedic, not trying to mislead you here. Therapeutic, the lesser known mattress made in Massachusetts. Does that alone mean they're any good? It doesn't, but they are good. In fact, they're great, on par with famous name mattresses that cost a lot more. Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. A lot of people have purchased a therapeutic mattress at Talon Furniture over the years, at least a thousand, and they're all sleeping well. A therapeutic mattress really is as good as the famous name mattress. And they're made by fellow base daters. In the grand scheme of the global mattress economy, Therapeutic is close to home. You like eating local? Try sleeping local. What I really love is, a Therapeutic mattress is clean. No toxic chemicals or off-gassing. I've walked the factory floor. I've seen how they're made. Talon Furniture, home of Therapeutic, just down the hill from Amherst College, in the sleepy part of town. AA made all the difference in my life. I noticed that most of the goals I had as a kid were slipping by. I didn't feel like the person I hoped to be. After all those years of drinking, I, I really didn't know myself. When I was out there drinking, I was always looking for the next great party to make me feel all right. With AA, I found a better way of life, and I feel good in my everyday life, even without a drink in my hand. Alcoholics Anonymous, it works. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111 or visit westernmassaa.org. Does your partner threaten or isolate you? Do they control where you go, who you talk to, or what choices you make? Are you afraid of what they might do? You have the right to a healthy and safe relationship. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, physical, Safe Passage is here for you. It's all free and completely confidential. Call our helpline to explore your options and plan for safety. That's 413-586-5066, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Or visit safepass.org today. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we are back. We've been talking to um, producer and engineer Dan Torres about his uh, exhaustive read of the January 6th committee report. Yeah. So I was talking about the intimidations, DOJ and uh, other uh, groups, the election workers as well. But one I had to mention was also the vice president, Mike Pence. That was also a strategy to pressure him to essentially do anything he could do on January 6th during the certification process to just say, kick it back to the House, um, kick it back to the state, say they were corrupt. In fact, you don't even need to go. We'll just send Chuck Grassley over there and he could run the entire process. And he was willing to say, no, I will do my ceremonial duty. I will follow the law. I am not going to go break the law because you guys are threatening me. And essentially, that's what they did. And at the end of this, there was an email exchange between uh, an official and Mike Pence's uh, chief of staff saying, it's your fault January 6th happened. Had you done what we told you to do, none of the violence would have happened. And it just says that's how far they were willing to go. And violence didn't matter to them. They said, hey, violence is part of American democracy. And them is... 
essentially Trump officials. I think it was John Eastman, what actually, about Trump? specifically. What about Trump? Was, no, Vi was Trump in on the, the, the report? Yeah, hard to say. I mean, the, the reports, like, we don't know what he did dur during those 118, 187 minutes when the mob first began and when Trump uh, finally recorded a video. They don't have information who he was talking to. They, I mean, one of the lines is we just don't have details from those 187 minutes. Of well, was. I wish we had 187 more minutes to talk to Dan Torres about his read on uh, a voluminous report. Um, I applaud your having done read it. Read the I, executive summary, at least. That's my opinion as well. Uh, more work for me this weekend. Yeah, than there I'll, you go. It's only 150 pages, Buzz. That's nothing. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us this week on Talk to Talk. Bill, been a pleasure. Thank you, Buzz. And thank you, Dan. Have a great weekend, everybody. You too. This Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m., Ruth Ann Lundeberg, hypnotherapist, releases certificates on the Shop 30 store. If you're feeling anxious, want to stop smoking, eat less, or drink less, whatever's got you stuck, Ruth Ann can help you get unstuck. Hypnosis has been around for thousands of years because it works. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Ruth Ann Lundeberg, hypnotherapist. Available this Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Bacon Humane Society believes in this bond. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 11 o'clock.